Welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Farnaz Fatemi, and you're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz. And we are recording this episode with Jennifer Franklin via Zoom. And I want to introduce you to Jennifer Franklin. She has published uh, two books before this most recent third one that we're going to be talking about, If Some God Shakes Your House, which is coming out this month in March, as I, as we talk from four-way books, um, the previous two books include no small gift from four-way in 2018. Jennifer received a Cafe Royal Foundation grant in literature and an NYFA City Artist Corps grant in poetry. And for the past nine years, she's taught manuscript revision at the Hudson Valley Writers Center, where she runs the reading series and serves as program director. And she also teaches in Manhattanville's MFA program. As I said, Jennifer lives in New York City with her husband, her daughter, and their rescue pit bull, Dottie. And I am just really excited to welcome you to, to tonight, Jennifer, to KSQD to talk about If Some God Shakes Your House. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you. I have now read this book a, a couple of times through, and it's a, a very rich um rewarding book to keep to reread um and it it really is essentially for me about how a woman and how a feminist responds to both individuals and institutions um, and systematic and personal attacks and oppression and the feminist point of view is at the heart of the book for me um very personal and and very public as well um, so I, I'd like, as I always do, to have listeners hear something to start our conversation. Um, but this is a there's a series of poems that are part of this book that are um, from their Antigone series. They're 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 called as Antigone each poem, and I want to start with one of those, the um, one on page twenty. And if you'd like to preface that with anything that you want to tell us about the title of the book, If Some God Shakes Your House, and what what you want to, to tell us to give the poems some context. Yes, thank you. Um, this book, If Some God Shakes Your House, takes the title from a line in Anne Carson's translation of Antigone, which she called Antigonic. And... Um, it is from that quote, um, if some God shakes your house, ruin arrives, ruin does not leave. And when I was first reading as many translations of Antigone as I could find, that passage from the chorus of Anne Carson's translation really stuck with me. So um, it became the title of the book. Originally, the Antigone poems were the, the first poems that were written for the book. Um, mm. And then they're interspersed with memento mori sonnets, as well as 
political prose poems. Mm -hmm. So um, the Antigone poems were originally titled um, Antigone's Desire or Antigone Makes a Decision, something like that. And then my editor, Martha Rhodes, had the suggestion to call them all as Antigone. And I thought about that for a while and ultimately wound up taking her suggestion um, because she felt that it would be better suited with the I persona to call them all as Antigone. So um, so I, I decided to, to go with that suggestion. Um, the Antigone poems go throughout the book. There are no section breaks in the book. They're just, um, they go Antigone, Memento Mori, and prose poem. I began thinking about Antigone um, when I first read Antigone in in high school and the, the Sophocles version and the Jean-Henri version we had to read in AP English. And I've wanted to write poems about Antigone ever since, but it wasn't until the prelude to the Trump administration and then during the Trump administration when I realized how I could write a book that was both personal and political and use the Antigone story to talk about the things that were going on in our country mm -hmm. at this time. So I'll read as Antigone on page 20. As Antigone, I am tired of everyone telling me what to do. For as long as I can remember, my mother told me how I should feel, what to eat, who to date, what clothes looked good and bad on my shape, which colors I could pile in front of stunned cashiers. During the first hurricane, she said I would die if I didn't listen to her orders. I grew up confusing opinion with oracle. She reminded me all men are dangerous each time I left the house alone. Even after I moved four states away for college, she sent me newspaper clippings, warnings in the mail. She believed I was safely married to a surgery resident and drove five hours to sit by my hospital bed and watch as IV fluids hydrated me. That winter, I wanted to end my pregnancy. After losing 33 pounds in seven weeks, she joined my husband's campaign to keep me sick and expecting. I visit a friend I haven't seen in years and confide how afraid I am for my disabled daughter when I'm dead. Her husband tells me my daughter is happy and oblivious, and she wouldn't know if she were being raped, as if she has less sentience than a dog chained to a pole in an overgrown yard. That was Jennifer Franklin reading as Antigone from her book, If Some God Shakes Your House. Quite the poem. And it's, that's not the first as Antigone poem in the book, but it's early on. Um, and it and it gives us some information about um, the contemporary speaker 
in the poem, um, in the persona of Antigone. Um, I am tired of everyone telling me what to do is <laughs> such a powerful open opening line. Um, and it's speaking back to so many things um, that are sort of received rules. I'm, I really noticed the pattern of the, that line in the, on the first page, I grew up confusing opinion with Oracle and what women learn is Oracle. And this is a kind of intervention um, in that. But also with the, the mother, it seems that you're illuminating how the mother falls for similar, like received ideas. She believed I was safely married to a surgery resident. This kind of what we, what we just assume or consume as, as the rules. Um, and then even that man saying what he says about um, the daughter, um, it's also just this, the sort of received cultural beliefs about people with disability. And um, so speaking back to that, um, I, I'm, I'm really curious about Antigone, um, why her, <laughs> you know, what you, you, you talked about wanting to, what, what is it specifically that, um, that you respond to? And also, um, well, let me ask that first. Let me just ask that. <laughs> yes. Well, I I was so struck when I read the play for the first time as a 16-year-old. Um, her her fierce loyalty, her strength, her bravery, and her devotion to her own moral code. So, you know, even though um it was considered, yes, the gods mandate for for the body to be buried. Creon, her uncle, the leader of the city is saying he cannot be buried because he um, started the civil war against Thebes. And so only one of the brothers could be buried and not the other one. And she was taking it as a strict rule that all people have a right to that burial. Um, so she decided to do it without, um, without really any fear um, of what would happen to her because she knew that she would be killed for it. Creon had said, anyone who goes against this order will be killed. Mm -hmm. And um, she was determined to follow her own desire and her own moral code. So this obviously inspired me when I was young before I had any anything to attach it to. Um, but I felt that it would be a wonderful quality to be this loyal. Of course, her fatal flaw is that it is to her detriment, to her own detriment mm. that she follows um, her own beliefs. Mm. Um, when my daughter was first diagnosed with autism when she was two years old, almost everyone around me, including her biological father, um, felt that really she should be given up on and, um, put away into an institution mm. and that once it became clear that she wasn't going to recover from her profound autism that just have another baby and hopefully that baby will be healthy um i could not follow that advice um or or have those feelings that she should just be written off mm. so um 
I decided to, it wasn't really even a decision. I felt compelled to take care of her. Mm -hmm. Um, She hadn't been asked to be born into this world. And so she deserved to, to have me give her as many opportunities to give, to teach her to be as independent as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, she's 22 now and she's never going to be able to take care of herself. She'll never be able to live alone. She'll never be able to even fully wash herself thoroughly. But um, she does have extraordinary ability to interact with people, to to receive love and to give love to the people that she loves. So I think that I at least, at least have set her up in, in that way so that when she goes to a residential facility, she will have that survival strength um, that people will will love her and appreciate her and she'll appreciate them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is what inspired me the most, Antigone's loyalty and her conviction to do whatever she felt needed to be done. So in these poems, mm-hmm. the person that that Antigone is protecting um, is the is the daughter and not the brother. Mm-hmm. I, I thank you for for um, elaborating that also to people who might not know the Antigone story. I think that's useful just to have that, but at the same time also to understand the personal um, parallel. So uh, about persona, I think that um, that there's you, you have you obviously have some proficiency with writing persona poems from previous work. Um, I know that, um, and you seem drawn to it um I'm curious again you as you mentioned and I think readers should know that about a third of the poems approximately are in persona of as Antigone the others aren't so there's this element in this book um and we'll talk about the rest of the book too but what is it about um I guess what does writing in persona offer you as a writer and then and then me or maybe specifically with this material what has it offered you well, I've always loved Greek myth ever since I was a little child. So um, Greek myths have informed a lot of my writing in the past. And I love what Gregory Orr talks about in Poetry of Survival um, in terms of why so many poets are drawn to using these Greek myths or, or myths from other cultures, mm-hmm. often because we know the story. And so the poet doesn't have to waste time um, explaining that part they're received by the culture. And so we can then, as poets, put our own personal spin on the story and make it our own. It's also a way to be able to write about very difficult things um, and to have that kind of veil or protection. And um, when I studied at Columbia for my MFA, I studied with Lucy Brock Broido and Richard Howard, who both were very interested and influenced by persona poems. And so um, I really became a big fan of the persona poem um, during that program. And I had already, in my undergraduate years at Brown, uh, been influenced by Rita Dove and Elizabeth Alexander and their use of persona poems. Mm. Thomas and Beulah was the book that inspired and influenced my senior thesis at Brown that I wrote for Michael Harper. 
And it was about my grandmother and her three siblings growing up as Sicilian immigrants in the Bronx. Well, I know as a reader um, it, with this material, it, you've mentioned how it's it, it enabled you to get closer to something that might be difficult. I think there's something that's useful too as a reader. Um, it's just some painful, painful material and to have it come from both you know two it's almost like two voices at once the way that it's operating in this in this book and I I really appreciate that um thank you yeah the the difficult material the the most difficult part about writing these poems were the part about my mother because it's a lot easier to accept and understand the the harm that had been done by um my daughter's father to both mm-hmm. of us but it's a lot harder to comprehend and understand when another woman especially a family member um is involved in this kind of um situation mm-hmm. but Again, it's because just what you said, so much of this is is the way we're raised as women in our mm-hmm. culture. And my mother was raised in a very parochial Italian-American culture and never went to college and really believed that the, the role of the woman was to have children. Um, of course, she wanted me to go to college and, and get an education, but she couldn't comprehend the idea of ending a pregnancy. And so I have a lot of empathy for her perspective, but it also was harmful to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when the empathy is, uh, it does come out and, and it's important to the overall story too. Um, I want to hear a couple more poems. Um, and you mentioned the Memento Mori series, uh, I want to, I'm thinking if you wouldn't mind reading two in a row, because I could, I just couldn't decide um, there. I love them all. Um, and if you could, uh, uh, Memento Mori is, is a reminder that we must die, right? That's the, that's what a Memento Mori is. But I also, there's so much else going on in these poems too, um, that it, so if you wouldn't mind reading Medieval Scribe and then Pistachios, yes. um, that would be. That would be great. And we could talk about them as a as a group of poems after that. Great. So Memento Mori Medieval Scribe is on page 77. She toiled in silence on manuscripts, maybe in a scriptorium with a view of green, a splash of white for sheep or cloud depending on the season. She presided over her paints, whose colors to her were more like words. Archaeologists find lapis lazuli between her teeth and prove women too illuminated manuscripts. Imagine her kneeling at a wooden table in candlelight at dawn, drawing the tip of the fine brush through her lips to make it finer still. Listen to her sigh as her open mouth cradles ultramarine that will hide in the cracks of her teeth for centuries. 
blue as a pharaoh's death mask, deep as angels' robes. And the next Memento Mori poem is Memento Mori Pistachios on page 86. I never know I'm an animal more than when I shell pistachios in the kitchen after washing dishes, waiting for you to come home. I know how I must look, cracking the tight shells, popping the small green nut into my open mouth again and again. I never knew your trick to pry a stubborn shell, slit not wide enough to open. You showed me how to place half a discarded shell in the small opening like a tool. It frightens me, my new resourcefulness, my hunger, the way I wait for you as if I will never have enough. That was Jennifer Franklin reading from If Some God Shakes Your House. And those are the memento, two of the memento mori poems um, in this in this book. What do you want to say anything about them as one of the three main categories of poems in, in the book? Well, just I would say that a lot of these poems are ecrastic poems. Uh about art or poems that have been provoked by newspaper articles. Mm. Um, and they might not necessarily be things that remind everyone of death. But for me, while I was writing this collection, all of these things that I read and saw um, reminded me of of my mortality. So um, there were a lot of poems I wrote that were sonnets during this time period um, that I wound up not including in the collection that were memento mori, but um, it was hard to stop writing them <laughs> once I began. I have that feeling because there's this um, this amazing momentum of them. There's a volume and there's a, a kind of range I picked those two because they're they're very different from each other um uh, you mentioned that they are sonnets both of these are are in two stanza eight and six stanza 14 line sonnet sonnets um and and I I don't I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit too but it is it feels like these poems both have um a, a kind of an appreciation quality and it's what um it what poetry does for me in general and is about thinking about life inside the reality of death and so i i respond very personally to them because of that i think there's no way to avoid death in this appreciation especially i mean the the my hunger the way i wait for you as if i will never have enough um and knowing that that's and uh, echoing the again and again in the first stanza um this endlessness is made um it's made more poignant by the by knowing that death is around it every corner um so what so again why 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 are they sonnets for you um and and uh why why isn't anything else in the po in the book sonnets why the, this particular group um 
<laughs> yes, I wanted to try to have the three types of poems be very distinct in terms of their form. Mm -hmm. So um, the the Antigone poems are mostly in couplets. Some of them are tercets, um, and they're they're not very long. They're about a page, mm -hmm. um, but they're lyric I poems. The prose poems are um, are all about things that happened during, right before the Trump administration and during the Trump administration. So um, those were, um, those took the prose form because it was a real deep dive into certain um, political aspects of living during that time period. Um, as a white woman in New York City, in our in our moment, mm -hmm. um, and then the sonnets, the Memento Mori sonnets, sort of became sonnet form when there were earlier poems that I had written that I turned into the Memento Mori. I I shortened them to have them fit the sonnet, mm -hmm. and realized that this kind of meditation on death and this close attention and appreciation to these things or pieces of art or people or um or instances really needed a form that was quite short and and would have a turn to them so that was why um they all turned into sonnets by the end mm -hmm. of the editing process um i also i just want to appreciate again the medieval scribe um it's a woman toiling in silence and invisible i mean it, unseen in history until this archaeologist discovers the ink in her teeth <laughs> and i think a lot of people saw this article in the atlantic and i know personally three other poets who also wrote poems about this medieval scribe and um, I th I think that that's a testament to how much women, how much women writers really feel compelled. I know I do to to write about women, especially women artists who were silenced throughout history. And so that is probably one of my most um, my largest interests in in this book and and even in earlier books and in the next manuscript I'm writing um, silenced women uh, and trying to give a voice to mm. those people. This is Farnas Fatimi and my guest is Jennifer Franklin. We are talking about her book, If Some God Shakes Your House, out this month from Four Way. And thank you so much. It's really great to hear poems out loud, especially the variety of forms that are in this um, book. And um, they they really these three there's three main threads that are speaking to each other and the, we haven't heard anything from the third one yet, um, and that is this group of prose poems again we've woven through so the book is is kind of cyclical it's in, as in a couple of as Antigone poems Memento Mori and then a prose poem or two with month months names of months as their titles. And I don't know if there's anything more you wanted to say about those, the why the months and how they operate through this collection. Well, these these prose poems um, originally started out 
with the month as the title. I did not intend to write as many of them as I wound up writing. Um, June is actually the first poem that I wrote of the prose poems. And when I felt that it worked in terms of being a way to talk about our political climate um, during and right before the Trump administration and the looming um, fear that Roe versus Wade was going to be overturned, I decided to continue writing in this series. Mm-hmm. And um, and once I had written a couple and used the month as a title, then I, I proceeded by doing that. Um, so I will start reading the poem June on page 26. I watched the news and walked out of my childhood home for the last time. I didn't look back at the pink and orange hibiscus, their huge stamen reaching for the sky. I didn't see the brown door, sun-stained and blotched, desperate for a new coat of paint. I studied the grass, unnaturally green, admonishing the footpath. House of excuses, house of of a polyagia. When Goya, deaf, retreated to the Quinta del Sordo outside Madrid, it already had its name. The man who lived there before was also deaf. I studied Lucia Joyce's schizophrenia in Dublin eight years before my daughter was born and didn't know my child's mind would bear a similar affliction. The girl who lived in our apartment before us had pervasive developmental disorder and an aquarium with tropical fish. She watched their colors as they swam back and forth all day. The young man who's moving in has Asperger's and will be cared for by his twin sister down the hall. My daughter spends her life watching puppets bright fur as they sing and dance across three screens. Perhaps Nietzsche was right when he theorized eternal return. By most accounts, Goya at 74 painted the black paintings for himself. Some scholars claim they are frauds painted by his son, Javier. All that matters is their testimony to our brutality while we inhabit lives we never thought possible. Milgram proved how easy it is to obey, to push the buzzer. Judith, beheading Halifernes does not frighten me. I watched Saturn devour my child for nine years, and now I watch as children suffer behind bars. When I close my eyes, all I see is Goya's drowning dog. He's stuck like Winnie in Happy Days, but without speech. All that gold light above the quicksand, as if nothing can save us. Thank you. Um, I am, I'm really struck by the line um, at the bottom of the, the uh, first page. Um, All that matters is their testimony to our brutality while we inhabit li- lives we never thought possible. 
Do you want to say more about that? You don't have to. <laughs> I'm not sure I would be able to say it um, any better than, than that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the, the, the poem, I mean, it, it is really meditating on the plight of, of being in this world and um, seeing what little can save us and also the way that we live with um, knowing the way we affect other people and um, and the way we continue to live despite that. Um, I, the, the, in this, in this poem and in the prose poems in, uh, as a category, there's a lot of intellectual and literary references. Uh, I don't think one needs to know all of them to have a, a, that strong experience of this poem, um, that I, that I'm describing. Um, but I wonder if you'd be willing to address, since you re refer to it, Nietzsche's theory of eternal return and um and i'm wondering if this idea is echoed by the way that book is structured as a cycle like a sort of cyclical um return <laughs> yes yeah when i was 19 i took a class at brown with martha nussbaum that was just entitled nietzsche <laughs> and i i was too young to really understand all of it and grasp all of it but it's something that impacted me deeply by having that whole semester reading everything that, that he wrote and having those seminar sessions with her and hearing her talk about his philosophy and the whole idea of eternal return um, and his, his whole thing about loving, you must love your fate and, um, it has really struck me as as something so so interesting that the the height of um coming to terms with your life and yourself he believed was that if you were able to say um that you would live your life over and over again in the same way without changing anything that you know you had you had really been able to to live um a, a fulfilling existence then. Mm -hmm. And um and this idea of eternal return is just that we keep living the same, the same lives over and over again. Um, and so that could either be for good or for bad, depending mm -hmm. on the decisions that we make. Mm -hmm. And and it seems played out both on individual levels in these poems and also on the the bigger political um and and uh, level <laughs> that things are repeating um yeah so Nietzsche has come up in in my last book I had a book I had a poem called Amor Fati about about loving loving your fate um and and a poem called the philosopher did not say which was on poem a day that that talks about this topic as well um and how and how Nietzsche at the end of his life um his last words were, mother, I am stupid. He saw a horse being beaten on the street and he said, mother, I am stupid. And he he lapsed into a coma and never spoke again. And just the brutality of what human beings can do to each other, I think is is the thing that compels me most about, about reading um, his work. Mm -hmm. Well, I... I... I feel that in the book, but I do also feel that what's happening 
too is that joy next to sadness is also repeated over and over and that the two um the two occur in that same way in repetition this poem i don't see much joy but <laughs> but there is yes you know I, I, the, the Stasio's poem has a lot of joy which <laughs> is why i'm glad that you that you wanted me to read that one yes <laughs> um so so the next poem apple orchard is another one of the memento mori poems um this poem isn't just a sonnet but it's actually a, a hinged sonnet. Um, is that right? That's what yes, the is. And that's the second, right. The second stanza begins at the last line of the first. Um, and let's hear it. And then we can talk about that. Yes. It's called Memento Mori Apple Orchard. In the gold light of early October, we climb the orchard hills, searching empty trees for apples. The boy at the gate tells us Ida Red, Rome, Crispin, and Surprise are all ripe and ready for our hands. We walk and walk. The dog investigates every fallen apple with her frantic nose. Even as we savor this autumn sunlight of our beginning, headlines remind us what is lost. Large families have picked the trees clean, leaving plastic bottles and paper napkins blowing like white flags. Instead of the fragrant apples on the ground, reminding me of my mother's baking, I catch the smell of decay. I catch the smell of decay as we walk through so many rows of stubby trees that we cannot find our way back to the car. We do not say what we're thinking, if we leave without a single apple, it might mean what we have done to the earth cannot be undone. The children who grow up on this imperiled planet will not remember pulling the russet fruit from the branches to bite into its sweet flesh. We see boys throw bruised apples at each other. Still children, they already know what is damaged becomes a weapon. As we pull away, we watch them run the worn paths. Their masks fall as they bend to collect the blemished apples and fill their empty bags. Again, that's Jennifer Franklin reading Memento Mori, Apple Orchard. Thank you for that. Um, this, this poem clearly savors the family that's getting to to be inside this orchard um at the very same time as it's honoring the the what have we what we have done to the earth um and the speaker's taking responsibility for that at, at at the same time as she's lamenting i think the brutality that you referred to in when we were talking about the last poem and in the last poem um what for you what role does poetry have um, when you care so you obviously care so much about both political and environmental destruction and its its impact on you and the world? Um, yeah, you know, what role does poetry have in that <laughs> for you? Well, I think this is probably one of the most overtly um, eco-poetical poems that, that I've written. Um, I, I find it 
slightly easier to talk about the political landscape in, mm. in these prose poems than I have a way of entering um, the conversation in eco-poetry about mm. what we've done to the planet. Um, but I think that this was such a clear metaphor, the, all of these bruised apples on the ground. Um, and this was the beginning of the pandemic in October of 2020 before mm. vaccinations. And one of the first times that my family um, and I had gone out and, and done anything out in the world and people were still sometimes wearing masks outside in a, in a big orchard like this mm -hmm. because of the fear of COVID, the deaths were on the rise again that fall. And it was all these things that came together. Um, the, the destruction of the planet, the political landscape, the mismanagement of the pandemic, the fear around the pandemic, the, um, the gun violence, the police mm. brutality. This was after the summer when George Floyd was was killed and the Black Lives Matter protests were throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So all of these things were happening when I wrote this poem. So um, I think that I, I try not to be didactic when I'm, when I'm writing political poems or eco poems, but it, it is always such a a fine um tightrope to walk when when one is um trying to to write lyric poems or narrative poems um or even prose poems and and to to <laughs> feel like you're doing service to both political activism and um to the language and to the metaphor and to the imagery mm -hmm. and to the craft of the poems. No, thank you for that that answer. Um, and for this, I it's really it's one of my favorite poems in the book that that Apple Orchard. So we it is again it's different from the other ones because it's a hinge sonnet. Um, were there? It's one of my favorite poems too. It was actually the one that was made into a broadside um, from the book, and it is. Um, it's in Tree Lines Anthology that was edited by Fred Marchant, Jessica Greenbaum, and Jennifer Barber. And they've also chosen it to be in the Macmillan um, introduction to um, literature. Um, so it's going to be in oh, an anthology in the nature poetry section that's oh, coming that's out in October. Oh, wonderful. I, I will put a link to that anthology in the, our show notes for people. Oh, so great. That's great. That. It's, a, it's a really wonderful anthology with a lot of incredible poets, Esther Lynn, um, poet, poems by the editors, um, Rachel Haddis, Jane oh. Hirschfield, Afa, and Weaver. Oh, great. Wow. Um, well, uh, so I think there's a, a connection, especially to the, the, the sort of power and impact of writing about um, Earth and uh, the and politics um, to this next poem, the prose poem November, and it's coincidental. I didn't do this on purpose. That your the poem we just heard takes place in October, and then this one is November. Um, so my apologies for that. It's not too obvious, but um, could you read November? It's from later in the in the collection, page eighty eight. Yes. This is November. 
We have aged nine years over the last four. Our dog and our daughter pace the living room as if they know what hangs in the balance. I slice the apple and cut myself, watch the blood soak into the wooden cutting board as if it were not my own. The days are getting shorter. It is almost a hundred years since Ceylon was born and 50 since he drowned himself in the Seine, unused waiting for Godot tickets in his wallet at home. Bill Irwin performs Beckett in a bowler hat and baggy pants, part clown, part clairvoyant. Ceylon said only one thing remained reachable, close and secure amid all losses, language. In spite of everything, it remained secure against loss. Words kept him alive years after his mother was murdered. It doesn't diminish his words that he chose to stop speaking. We go to sleep and wake up four times. Still, the election has not been called. We find out the news the way our ancestors did in times of plague. Bells ring out in the streets, and while we emerge from the cloying rooms, stale with old air, early autumn meets us like longed-for draft. We walk five miles, the dog drags behind us. We talk to strangers, the city is still our home. Since Ceylon, after all he witnessed, could write, a star still has its light, nothing Nothing is lost. I must believe him. We enter the building through the side door and see no one. I wash and peel the ripe pears. So it, again, like the other prose poem, this there's these these um, literary references to Ceylon, also to Beckett, and Beckett appeared earlier. Um, and yet um, we don't need to know we don't need to know who they are in order to experience much of the importance of what you're you're pulling in. And I, I do love Beckett in a bowler hat and baggy pants. Um, the, the image is the part clown, part clairvoyant. Um, but I, it, the the Ceylon's words throughout um, about the that language remains um, secure against loss, um, and and the fact that you're the you at the end of the poem um quote him again a star still has its light nothing nothing is lost and that you must believe him because he wrote this um in light of everything that he witnessed i think i mean obviously you're a poet if you must believe him <laughs> and it, it makes it true and i wonder though um why why must you believe him at, at this like late stage after aging nine years over four. Right. I, I feel that the fact that he was able to, after the Holocaust, go on for so long, even though he ultimately committed suicide, mm -hmm. the fact that he was able to put so much of his heart and soul into writing and into using the German language still even after those were the perpetrators who killed his parents to, to try to 
take back and and reappropriate that language that had been appropriated by the murderers, um, that that project is really inspiring. And it's inspiring to me in the same way that Antigone is inspiring mm-hmm. to me, that, um, that she was able to, in the face of death, choose to bury and then rebury her brother two times, even though she knew that Creon would have her sentenced to death. And the fact that Ceylon says that language is the only thing that remains secure. As a poet, it's really all I have in order to try to to do good in the world and to try Mm -hmm. to sustain people as they're suffering um, and Mm -hmm. to sustain sustain myself as I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. So um, if Ceylon could do it, after everything that he had been through in the concentration camps and through seeing his his parents murdered, then I'm trying to to also believe that language has this extraordinary healing power for people mm. and ability to change the world even in small ways. Mm. And and Virginia Woolf says, you know, whether we we have to write what we have to write and whether it is remembered for for five days or whether it's remembered forever, that's not in our control, but mm. we have to write. As long as we write what we write, is that that's important. Mm. I'm, uh, I know you're a great teacher and I, I am, I'm that you just gave evidence of it. That is, those are great arguments for keep, for being poet, for making poetry and also just for continuing to write. Um, I want to ask you a couple things about teaching. Um, if I could, I know you work with students on, um, year long, year long manuscript classes. Um, yes. I'm so glad you're asking me about teaching because I truly love it. It's (sighs) been the greatest gift Mm. to me to be able to work with these students at the Hudson Valley Writer Center. It's now, this is the 10th year that I've worked with them. And most of them are people who have always wanted to be poets. Mm. And for whatever reason, life through, things at them that they had to contend with um, and they had to put their writing aside. And of course I can really understand and empathize with that because that's what happened to me uh, for over a decade. So Mm. I get special joy in working with students who've always wanted to write a first book and publish Mm. a first book and had to put it off for so long. And do people come to your class uh, with with poems they've started or they come not having started poems from a collection? Do they come from both, you know, in both contexts? And um, do you, you work all the way from the beginning through putting the whole manuscript together? Most of the students come with at least a group of 20 poems. So at at least a chapbook size manuscript. Okay. Okay. And then usually it turns into a full length collection and, and some people wind up staying um, for several years and do more than one book (laughs) with (laughs) us. And, um, and then my MFA students are working on their thesis. So Mm -hmm. their, their focus is craft and, uh, we read a lot of poems in mm. each week um, and we spend an hour each week talking about craft and then we workshop 
the individual poems and they'll all go towards the thesis if they're poetry majors, but if they're um, prose majors, they're just maybe just taking the a poetry class mm-hmm. and then they're they're writing poetry sometimes for the first time. Mm. So as a way to circle back, I, I wonder if you could talk about the overall structure and sequence of this book and how, well, how you might talk about that working on the sequence of a book with students and how you thought about it with this, this one. Is, yes, is it obvious think, to you? <laughs> I, I think it's such an important question. And I love, first of all, to talk about a story that, that Nick Flynn and Marie Howe talked about um, when they came to read at the Hudson Valley Writer Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, we always ask this question of our poets when they come, because it's often such a mysterious thing about mm-hmm. how do you order a, a collection of poems mm-hmm. and everyone has a really interesting answer so mm-hmm. I love hearing everyone's okay. perspective on it and I don't think there's only one way to do it and Marie's story is that she and Nick spent a very long time ordering her Magdalene manuscript and putting it in what they felt was the perfect order and then they piled it up and went out to dinner and when they came back, a wind had blown in and destroyed the ordering. And so the manuscript was on the floor and they didn't remember how they ordered it. And so they had to order it again. And she doesn't know whether it was exactly the same or whether it was it was very different. But it kind of is a good example of how there isn't just one way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to go back to Lucy Brock-Bordeaux's advice, which is the first three poems and the last three poems should be your best six poems in your book. Mm-hmm. So I like to try to, to have a really strong opening and a really strong closing. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, with this book, I felt that it needed to begin with the Antigone poems, since that to me is the emotional core of the book. And I wanted to end with the Antigone poems because for me, it had to, it had to all begin and end there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, um, again, thank you to Jennifer Franklin for being with us to talk about if some God shakes your house and it, the it, time flies so fast. We could, I wish we could talk about many more poems in this book, but um, I will be putting in the show notes links to your website and to ordering the book from four way books. Thank uh, you. Yes. And, and I, again, thank you for being with us. If you would be willing to close uh, reading as Antigone on page 93, which is the last and, um, it is the last poem in the book, correct? It is. I just yes. said myself is the last poem in the book. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved talking to you about these poems and it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you. This, this is called As Antigone. I still want to believe I can find some way to fix you. That if I go back to the beginning, retrace the disaster with the savant detective's obsession, I could uncover a cure, the smartest expert, some successful drug. Better yet, I want the pediatrician to give you a different diagnosis. I want to go back to the walk home past restaurants and playgrounds 
autumnal light catching all the auburn in your hair. I want to go back to the moment your father left us outside the cafe. Consider handing you to him all 47 pounds of you in your gingham pants and hot pink cardigan, Dalmatians decorating the little pockets and walk away without looking back. But I would never have left and I won't now. One way or another, you will be the end of me, inadvertent brute force, vector of virus, constant caretaking, your heavy body forcing my remission's abrupt end. I know what's waiting, as certain as cloth hung to hold my scarred neck. I will not walk away. The moment the nurse pressed your splotched body into my arms, your needs fixed my fate. Constantly confused, your jagged voice requests Christmas songs all spring. You shove words of grace into my dry throat and I sing. I don't need a bottle of pills, white as sleep, to silence me. Every ersat saint knows endless sacrifice is suicide. For 20 years, I have been disappearing. Touch me. I am not even here.